Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Now is the end of the day. We have foraged for berries and scrap metal. All of us must rest. Tell us a story, post-electric hawkwoman Griot. Okay, hundreds of years ago, things were shiny and good and nice. But then came the great collapse. The flares from the sun and the dust storms and the virus from outer space that came down on meteors and then the zombies and the, the cannibals. Tell us a different story, post-electric hawkwoman Griot. Back in those shiny times, people played golf. What was golf? It was played with metal clubs. And did they use the clubs to crush the skulls of the wild animals who attack us at night and drag us from the campfire? No, they they used the clubs to hit a tiny round white thing and make it go into a hole. And did the round thing frighten the rodents who lived in the hole so that they ran into the sunlight and were eaten by the golf people? just as we sometimes get to eat rodents on major holidays of our highly superstitious religion? No, the the golf people just took the round thing out of the hole and brought it a short distance away and tried to hit it toward another hole, and when they got it into that hole, they would take it out again. Surely this had deep, deep meaning back in the shiny times? Yes, it did. Much meaning. So, what was the meaning? You know, everybody looks really exhausted. Maybe we should just turn in. What do you say? No, tell us the meaning. We desire to learn from the ancient shiny ones. Well, among the sisterhood of the post-electric hawkwoman griots, it is believed that it was good fortune if a golf person could make the round thing go in the hole by hitting it only four times. And if it took five? That was a bogey the demon man who comes at night to take the children who eat more than their fair share. I'm afraid so, yes. Post-electric hawkwoman griot, let us never play golf. Oh, I agree. Anyway, it's way too expensive. Let us listen now to some talking in the air from the shiny times. And now the nuns warned him about the effect of his grip on his shaft. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, I went to a uh, Catholic golfing academy, apparently, uh, in eighth grade only. So, um, so yes, it might be difficult to explain to a future civilization what golf is, but we know what golf is right now, uh, and it has a storied history uh, here in the United States, and it's something that m- most of our presidents ha- have played in recent years, Eisenhower being probably the most golf-addicted president and the most golf-associated president of all time. Although, if a certain scenario plays itself out, and will a scenario that will probably result in exactly the future that you just heard, uh, we could have an even more golf-centric president, one who um, owns golf courses that bear his name. Like, I think like almost 20 of them or something. Anyway, that's all to come. What we want to talk about right now is what golf, what kind of footing golf is on right now. Uh, Brian Curtis joins 
joins us, uh, editor-at-large uh, at The Ringer. We're very excited about The Ringer. The Ringer is the, if you miss Grantland, The Ringer is the thing which you're about to get to, to replace Grantland in your affections. He's also written for Slate and The Daily Beast. He's written a lot about golf. Uh, also joining us by, he's in the NPR studios in New York. Bob Cook's going to be joining us by phone. He's a youth sports blogger for Forbes. His blog is Your Kids Not Going Pro. And a little bit later, we'll talk to the owner and general manager uh, of a golf course here in Connecticut. But, uh, Brian Curtis, I want to begin with you. Hey, first of all, when when does The Ringer start? I'm really excited about The Ringer. We're looking at uh, sometime in the early summer all right. around there for the shiny times to uh, once again recommence in the sports writing world. All right. It's going to be fun. That will be good. All right. So um, here it is. It's uh, early April. It's there's snow on the ground here in Connecticut, which kind of, you know, maybe is part of the problem that we're about to talk about right now. But so this is kind of when the golf season is supposed to start. Uh, The Masters is warming up uh, right now. They're beginning their week long uh, Masters thing they do down in Augusta. Um, So it should be a happy time to talk about golf. Um, But I sense that it's not. I mean, is there a case to be made that the numbers of golf don't work as well anymore, that they don't point to growth and success. They point to, as uh, George Costanza would say, shrinkage. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, I think when we say shrinkage, which is something we've been saying a lot about baseball, Mm -hmm. you know, for the last couple of years, maybe a couple of decades, we have to put that in the context that they're not going to cancel the masters due to lack of interest in a couple of years. But I think you can look at enough metrics And probably come to the conclusion that uh, people who were playing the sport, especially over the last two decades, over the Tiger era, uh, have drifted away. And that's a few of them anyway. And that's that's interesting and uh, and perhaps even significant. So, yeah, participation in the game is off from a high of 30.6 million golfers in uh, 2003 to 24.7 million. That's not chump change here in Connecticut, but it is it does point down as opposed to up. And, and that may be a part of the problem, um, or at least it may be the problem. So, um, Bob Cook, uh, I want to bring you into this conversation. Um, and I, I'm going to ask both of you about this, but um, it seems to me that in a time where um, the young younger members of a middle class are reporting that they have trouble finding jobs that pay what they would hope to be paid. And uh, we have a candidate like Bernie Sanders running right now, not to make everything about the presidential race, running kind of on the issue that, you know, people's incomes haven't kept up with overall economic growth because there's a small group of rich people, then a whole bunch of people not doing that well. You need people in their teens and 20s to take up a sport like golf. And, And it costs the bar to entry with golf is is high. It's it's not high like it costs a lot of money to buy a really nice bicycle and then you ride for free the rest of the time. It costs money every time you play golf. And for people who don't play golf, it's probably a little surprising how much it does cost. So, Bob Cook, is that part of the problem? It just costs a lot of money to play golf every time? That's huge. It costs a lot of money. It also costs a lot of time, which people don't necessarily have. Um, you know, one thing that's happened in the, in the Tiger Woods age is you had these, you know, these bigger monster courses that got more expensive to play and what you had fewer of, you know, were the par threes that you could just, you know, take a cheap set of clubs and knock around. So, you know, the barrier, the financial barrier to entry is higher. And for, for kids as well, you know, because of, of the decline of the middle class, I mean, put on, put on my Bernie Sanders hat for a moment, but, you know, because of the decline in the middle class, um, and also the amount uh, that, that, you know, that parents have to work to keep, you know, to, to keep their jobs going. You know, there's just not the money 
or, you know, for kids or the time for their parents to support them to, you know, to get on the golf course. Um, you know, and, and also, I mean, even, you know, when parents are spending that money on a sport, what's also happened over the past, you know, 10, 15 years is that, you know, kids specialize in one sport from a very early age. So, or at least certainly those whose parents feel like, you know, the, those kids whose parents feel like that, you know, someday they, they maybe, you know, maybe want to make their high school team or be good at a sport. So, you know, that may squeeze golf out too because the kid, you know, is, is in baseball or basketball or, some, or soccer, you know, from age 9 or 10 or earlier on. And so that also squeezes out time for golf. But, you know, the other thing on top of it is golf is just a hard sport to learn how to play. And, and there was an interesting number, that, some numbers that came up from the National Golf Foundation that there actually are a fair number of people who try it. You know, they go to a driving range or maybe they, you know, they, they pick up a club and, and they drop it about as fast as they pick it up. So, um, so all those factors are really working against the sport. Yeah, I just want to stay with the money for a second. I, I got curious about this. My son plays golf, which means that I wind up knowing how much it costs to play golf, sort of. Uh, and But so public courses, like what do they cost? Well, as you say, in the Tiger Woods era, there was this kind of vainglorious building of fabulous courses. So Golf Digest checked out the greens fees uh, at its top 100 greatest public courses. The average peak, se- peak season weekend green fee was $193. Uh, Ten of those public golf courses charge more than 300 including the number one ranked Pebble Beach, 495 Well, you figure it will cost a lot of money to play around at Pebble Beach, but that's a lot of four hundred ninety-five dollars. Number six, Shadow Creek in North Las Vegas, was five hundred dollars, um, and even your local, you know, public golf course um, is. Brian, do you play golf, Brian Curtis? I don't. I'm the rare kind of guy who loves to watch golf on TV, but doesn't yeah. play it myself. I, I was gonna. I, I mean, I checked green fees around here, and it's going to be thirty, thirty-five, forty. And to Bob Cook's point about, say, uh, a millennial uh, who you know just spent all of his money uh, eating some kind of artisanal hash in Brooklyn. Well, wait a minute, that's you actually. Um, <laughs> you know, he may not have. He or she may not have thirty-five or forty bucks to go play a public course. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I have taken golf lessons, and and I'm one of those that have, <laughs> one of those statistics, right? The people that quit because the golf lessons took a couple of hundred bucks, and then eight hundred to a thousand, right? If I want to buy a respectable uh, set of clubs to go out, and then now we're talking greens fees on top of that. Yeah, I don't, I don't have that kind of money in my pocket, and I also think there's kind of an interesting when you talk about millennials and youngish people. I think there's also an interesting just social change going on. You know, I mean, maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, dad, you know, waved goodbye to the family on Sunday, right? And put that clip, put his bag over his shoulder and said, see you later. I'll be back in a few hours. And I don't know, and I, maybe I'm generalizing from my own experience as a young dad, but I don't know that I could do that and certainly couldn't do that every Saturday morning and just vanish for hours and hours, and, uh, you know. And that's, bro- that's a social thing that's changed. And in terms of watching it, since you say that you watch it, Brian, and this is a grotesquely unfair day in which to make invidious comparisons, but then I like grotesquely unfair comparisons. So <laughs> last so last night, I decided I would watch the NCAA championship game. At, ha- at halftime, I thought, you know what, I'm going to turn this thing on. I sort of stopped paying attention to the tournament, hadn't really watched Villanova or North Carolina with any care at all, didn't really know much of anything about the players. So I 
turned on just in time for some halftime highlights to kind of contextualize myself. By the end of this thing, I'm screaming my head off in the living room. <laughs> I'm screaming when Paige sings this impossible three-pointer, screaming, you know, 4.7 seconds later when Villanova comes right back with their own uh, and, and wins it. I mean, I'm out of my mind. And it seems to me... It's hard to have a comparable experience with golf. If you don't know much about golf and you're not familiar with golf, I don't think you can turn on a golf tournament and in the course of an hour and 15 minutes be transported into some kind of state of ecstasy. But, Brian Curtis, maybe you'll disagree with me about that. Yeah, well, maybe not the you know adrenaline shot to the heart that that game was last night, which was incredible. But I think you know if you tu- maybe if you tuned into the U.S. Open last year about hole 14 on Sunday, mm-hmm. I think you would have had a pretty nice little hour and a half there. With an incredible uh, choke job, right, and an incredible story of uh, Jordan Spieth winning, and and uh, and some sort of back and forth over the final holes. I don't know. That would have been a pretty great hour, hour and a half, no matter what you knew about golf. Well, there you go. And, and to speak to actually, if I could speak yeah. to Brian's point, where he was, you know, he talks about, you know, he doesn't golf, but you know, and you know, he's got kids. I've got kids. I don't golf, and and I don't golf because I was a caddy, and and golfers were horrible people. Um, sorry, golfers. <laughs> but um, but anyway, you know, the way a lot of sports get introduced is from parents to kids, and uh, and and so you know, if the parents aren't golfing, the kids are probably not going to golf, and. You know, and that's, you know, and, and you, you see that a lot that, you know, that, that you, you bring your kid out to whatever sport you like. And, and it doesn't mean that the child's going to play it. But golf is especially, it, it's sort of like baseball in that sense, where it really, you know, there, there's got to be someone, a parent involved, you know, to, to play catch or to help, you know, to, to be there while you hit balls or, or, or do something. Um, and so, you know, you don't really hear of too many kids who just, you know, out of the blue, like, I'm going to be a golfer. Um, I mean, it's not necessarily all the extreme, like, or, you know, Earl Woods. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if, you know, you, you know, to Brian's point that, you know, he's not taking off on the weekends to play golf, so he's not going to bring his kid to come in and play golf. And, and probably, you know, he's going to spend a lot of his time watching his kids play other sports that he, he may or may not like, but he's probably more familiar with. And, and that's, that's also what, what golf – suffers from. I mean, we're past the days when, you know, it was required to close a business deal to go, you know, to go hit 18. You know, that it just doesn't, it's just not, doesn't, doesn't happen anymore. Um, by the yeah, way, as, think- as we go along here, um, uh, if you want to call in, particularly if you want to call in and uh, defend golf, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266, or you may tweet us, tweet at us, you millennials, uh, at WNPR Colin. Brian, what were you going to say? Well, I think that just to Bob's point about a social thing or a business thing, I think that's absolutely right. You know, I think if, again, to go back 10, 20 years ago, if you wanted to, you know, ha- you know keep up with your buddy on Saturday and make all the bad jokes you're going to make and uh, talk about whatever's going on in your lives, you know, maybe you had to find do that on the golf course. Now maybe you just text, right? Maybe you just text back and forth and you don't even have to see each other. <laughs> uh, and I, And I do think that's true. I think golf is a social ritual, and I think we've got – other social rituals now that are competing with it for for our time. To be fair to golf, it's not just that sport. I've noticed because my my son played high school football, and and you know, and I noticed that you know there aren't as many you know kids that go to games as they're used to. Well, you don't have to go to a game to find out where the parties are on Friday night anymore. So you know, there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of things that have replaced you know participating in a sport you know or watching a sport um, you know socially. 
Um, as we go along here, oh, by the way, I want to say that uh, I am fortunate enough to have a son whose whose first question about any activity, music, cultural experiences, would my father like this? And if the answer is no, then he embraces it eagerly. So, um, so he does golf, although I reject the sport. So th- there is a little bit of that. So, I mean, in some ways, this argument uh, argues for a little bit of a cultural re- repositioning of golf. And I, I, th- I, I, I say this sitting here in a city, the city of Hartford, that's had a lot of problems and has kind of a bad reputation nat- uh, nationally, but which has spent millions of dollars recently refurbishing two public golf courses, one of them in a in a in a absolutely overwhelmingly African-American uh, part of town, the, the other one in a different part of town. Um, and But I, I wonder about that, Brian, because the other thing that we know is that this generation, the millennial generation, they've gravitated more towards cities. Uh, the suburban dream, the acre of land, all that kind of stuff uh, seems to hold less allure. A city with a lot of interesting amenities and a chance uh, to live an urban lifestyle is much more attractive to young people. And uh, maybe one of the problems that golf has that is it's perceived as primarily a suburban sport, overwhelmingly a suburban sport. But I mean, if if up and coming aspiring cities try to make themselves into places where hipsters can go play golf, uh, that could be maybe a new artisanal golf. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, I think and I think there's probably a few experiments. Is it is it Top Golf? Am I saying the right thing? Where you go and it's this big. Chuck E. Cheese of, uh, of golf, where you go, you know, go hit on basically in a driving range and eat and drink and all that kind of stuff. Those that's in you know in cities, but you're right. You know, if you don't have a car and you're not you know capable of driving, you know, twenty thirty minutes, it's kind of a hard uh, it's kind of a hard sell, and it's kind of hard to pack everybody in the car and go there. I didn't think about that, but I suppose that's another reason where maybe this generation is drifting away just a tad. And and so, uh, Bob, one of the things I think that you think also is golf just it's kind of got a bad image, a bad reputation. You were a caddy. You didn't enjoy your interaction with the kind of person that you wound up caddying for. Um, but I, I wonder if that reputation is indelible. You know, I mean, I wonder if golf golfers could be understood to be a different kind of person. Well, I think one thing when you talk about, you know, turnaround in golf and is, is that you know, there does. You know, golf has traditionally had this. You know, this country club mindset, and and it's hardly the only sport. But um, you know, where it's very exclusive, and are you good enough to be here? And and in a lot of ways, I mean, what will have to happen to help turn things around or, or staunch the losses is to you know is to essentially be more welcoming. I mean, and and that means being welcoming to the person who takes five hours to play or is not you know is not as serious or is you know is doesn't quote unquote respect the game is 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 the Bryce Harper of golf um you know you you know you need to do something to open the doors and say hey you know we want you here you know do you you know have you know cheaper days do you you know do i mean how do you how do you get all in the mix cuz what was interesting is um not that i would normally recommend reading internet comments but um, you know, the Wall Street Journal had a story a few weeks ago about about golf and its decline, and and you know there was some interesting conversation. But there were golfers on there who were basically, oh, who needs these people? Oh, they're spoiled. Oh, they can't handle it. They want everything handed to them. Keep them off the course. So like, well, I, I mean, I guess that's great for you, but for the future of the sport, you can't really you can't really work that way. One other thing too, you know, in numbers wise, that's it, it's not just going to hit participation numbers in golf, but really all sports, is that, you know, the, there is a baby bust between 2000, about 2008, 2012, the poster session baby bust, that's just starting to work its way through the youth sports system. 
So you're going to you're going to hear a lot of sports going. Where did everybody go? And the simple answer is they weren't born. <laughs> uh, you know, Bob. In all fairness, I think the Wall Street Journal has a nanobot that uh, just writes, "Who are these people? They're spoiled. Get rid of them." <laughs> at the bottom of every single Wall Street Journal article. So that could have been an article about baking. I, I thought that was the actual editorial. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, that could have been an article about baking. It would have said basically the same thing. Uh, <laughs> all right. So we have to uh, say the the T word now, Brian Curtis, and that that's Tiger. Twenty years uh, ago, this August, Tiger Woods. Uh, turned pro, and and it seemed as though he could put golf on its on his shoulders almost, and give it a new image, give it an appeal to uh, a different demographic group, to a different racial group, uh, give golf a new, more highly athletic image. This guy, his even his body was kind of different from what you think of as like <laughs> like Jack Nicholas or something, a, a typical golfer body. Everything seemed like it was about to be different, and there was this this you know, this paragon of excellence. Uh, and I know maybe was that always asking too much of, of Tiger Woods? Yeah, I think it was. And I think it's, but I don't think it was, it didn't seem like that in 1998, did it? It seemed like he was going to transform golf into, into this kind of public or, you know, broadly popular thing. Right. You know, I think America's always liked golf a little, and then Tiger comes along, and we like it a little bit more, <laughs> probably is the answer. There was this amazing moment, but now we can sort of see clearly that what we liked about it during the Tiger years, the Tiger era, if you will, is Tiger, mm-hmm. right? We didn't love golf anymore, probably, than we did before. And I think um, there was this kind of amazing moment last year at the Wyndham Championship in North Carolina. Uh, Tiger was leading during the third round. It was one of these kind of tantalizing, he's back, he's back, he's back moments. And as somebody on uh, CBS's website pointed out, that round, that third round, got a higher television rating than the third round of the last three U.S. Opens. Right? So just the promise of Tiger playing in this, you know, comparatively low wattage tournament on a Saturday and actually winning brought everybody back to the television in this kind of funny way, which I think tells you everything you need to know. We were interested in Tiger more than we were interested in golf. Although, Brian, another problem with this, I mean, obviously, a lot of things happened to Tiger, starting with hitting a fire hydrant in 2009, and everything kind of went downhill from there. And we'll never probably know the answer to the question, you know, was he ultimately the wrong guy to be the standard bearer of a whole sport? Or did the pressure of that role as standard bearer begin to crack him in all kinds of ways that were mostly taking place off the golf course at first? But but it, one thing he didn't really ever have is kind of a Larry Bird to his Magic Johnson, right? I mean, it seems to me one of the things that, boy, that was a really unfortunate way to put it, wasn't it? But anyway, um, but, um, but you know, there wasn't a rivalry. There wasn't a, a, a Borg to his McEnroe, what, whatever. I mean, there was just Tiger, and maybe that was part of the problem. Sure, yeah. It's funny now, because now, if you look at the tour, there's a lot of competitors, you know, right? You know, if you can imagine if Tiger were still healthy and still playing well, you know, and trying to grind out Nicholas's record, He'd be playing against Jordan Spieth, right? Wow, that would be fascinating television. Or Rory McIlroy, right? But just as it seemed that these guys came along, who would have been his great young foils, rivals, whatever you want, however you want to say it, Tiger's in decline. He's not playing Augusta this week. Right. And, and Bob, to that point, and to your point before about the demographics of this, 
notwithstanding those demographics, the guys that Brian is talking about right now are tiger babies to a certain degree, right? There are, I mean, Rory McIlroy grew up inspired, heavily inspired by Tiger. If anything, he was from an equally economically, I don't know, disadvantaged is the wrong word, but I mean, his father held down several jobs to earn additional income, and his mother worked extra shifts at the local 3M plant in Northern Ireland. Uh, I mean, in some ways, Tiger's legacy was to inspire a bunch of non-traditional people to get on the golf track. No, there's no doubt about that. I mean, the 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 issue is though that there weren't there weren't enough of them. I mean, there there were certainly some that that pushed to an elite level, and and you know, as you mentioned, their parents. I mean, no no athlete normally gets to an elite level without, um, shall we say, pushy parents. I mean, without parents who are willing to make that to make that sacrifice, because again, of the expense and the time. And it's not just golf; it's a lot of different sports, but. Um, and, but also to the point about the difficulty and expense and time of golf, you know, there certainly were people who, you know, who inspired by Tiger, you know, their kids are like, oh, I want to learn golf. And then, you know, they, they go out and do it and they're like, wow, this is, <laughs> this is not easy, um, you know, or they're just not as interested. And, in, you know, they, it, it takes a long, very long time to be good at golf. I mean, then that's certainly one of the appeals of the sport and why people stick with it because it's, it's so challenging, but you know, but that's also um, where, you know, absent, um, you know, affordable courses and, you know, a culture that really, you know, loves and pushes golf, you're just going to find fewer golfers as a result of that. Um, We've got a ton of calls coming here. I want to get to these calls. Um, I want to ask about one more thing. We'll take a break and then we'll come back. Ted, David, Pete, Andrea, Steve, all you people. We'll try to get a a bunch of you on the air with our guests. But um, before we go to break, before we do all that, Brian, I just want to, you know, I mean, another issue is sort of merchandising things to sell, um, the, the style of a particular sport. I mean, most people who like a certain sport are probably going to, you know, get NFL jerseys or Tom Brady eye black or something or uh, or, or some kind of sneaker uh, having to do with basketball. Golf's a little bit more complicated. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to sell, but there I don't know that golf fashion has caught on exactly, at least not at this moment, not with the younger generation, except that there are these little flashes, including like Ricky Fowler, who's one of the sort of post-Tiger uh, generation of, of golfers, has like this whole fashion thing going on with hats and stuff, right? Yeah, these dreamsicle-colored Puma hats, right, that you see everywhere. I went to a couple of golf tournaments last year, and every kid under age 20 is wearing one of these. And then you see the kind of 40-year-old guy with the big beer gut mm. who's, uh, you know, kind of wearing the shirt tucked into khaki slacks, and he's wearing the Ricky Fowler hat, you know. I mean, it's sort of – it's, and I think what it solved with golf is that there's just something to buy, you right. know. And, I mean, if you're a Tom Brady fan, as you say, you wear your Brady jersey everywhere. Oh, that guy's a Tom Brady fan. But what do you – you know, if you're a Jordan Spieth fan, what do you do? Wear the tasteful, you know, aqua – <laughs> colored golf shirt around. Who could tell, right, unless you really knew about golf? Well, people but would think there was Ricky, something really wrong with you then. Like, if yeah. they didn't know that, that that's why you were doing it, then there'd be yeah, a problem. Yeah, that's right. I don't know if I'm standing up for merchandising. I don't know if I'm, I feel, I feel like I want to do that in the Bernie Sanders way, but it does kind of become this signal, right, to other sports fans. Uh, yeah, I'm a fan of Ricky Fowler. Look at me. I'm wearing his stuff. And, and I sort of think golf just really lacked that for a long time, or at least cool stuff to buy. 
Well, although just to, uh, to that point, though, um, so I just I covered this story today. So Ricky Fowler, he does have these hats. And on the back of the hats, it says RickyFowler.com. So after his first master's, he's in the media center. He takes his hat off, but then he sees that there are people who put it with their hats on. It's a media center. It's kind of relaxed. And it's the media, they're wearing hats. So he puts his hat back on, but he puts it on backwards so you can see the RickyFowler.com. And Ron Townsend of Augusta National, while he's talking, I think, reaches over and turns his hat around to face the brim <laughs> forward. This is how we wear our hats, young man. So if you want to talk about sort of a cultural divide, uh, a moment where one generation is not communicating with the other or maybe communicating too well, there you have it. All right, let's take a little break. We'll come back. We've got a whole bunch of calls here. We've got a whole bunch of other things to talk to Brian and Bob about. So we'll be back. McCaddy lost sight of it. That little white pellet has never been found to this day. But it went straight down the middle, like they say. All right, uh, we're back. We're talking about the future, if there is one, of golf. There is a future of golf. It may be a diminished future. Uh, Brian Curtis, who's editor-at-large at at The Ringer. We're all getting excited, waiting for The Ringer to come. Uh, It's uh, sort of of the sequel to Grant Land. That's the easiest way to express it. He's also written for Slate, The Daily Beast. Bob Cook, youth sports blogger for Forbes. His blog is called Your Kids Not Going Pro. Uh, We've got a lot of calls coming in. I want to get a a couple of them on the air. I'm going to start with Andrea, uh, especially because, I should say, when thing we tried to do is get Susie Whaley on the show. Susie Whaley will probably, she's from Connecticut. She's a kind of Connecticut golf hero. There's even kind of a rule called the Susie Whaley rule. Uh, and she's probably going to be the next head of the PGA, the first woman head of the PGA. So uh, maybe one of the ways that golf can improve its future is uh, by developing uh, the woman's side of it even more than they have already. But here's Andrea calling from Wallingford. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, Hi how's it going? Good. Yeah, I have a completely different experience with golf, and it's just really interesting to listen to y'all talk about it, but my grandfather was about as blue-collar as you could get. He was a railroad engineer, and uh, my grandmother wasn't even allowed on the golf course with him, yet she could outdrive any guy at the time. And my dad played a little bit, and when we were kids, we had sawed-off golf course or, or uh, golf clubs. He'd take us to some kind of commercial office park. We'd drop the balls in the field, and we'd just chip around. And as I got older, I mean, I never was any good. And uh, my dad actually is not really any good either. But we would just go out and, you know, we'd, we belong to a club and we'd go in after work and all the way through college, we'd play maybe once a month or so together. And in terms of hanging out with your parents and it being multi-generational, my grandfather had two knee joints replaced and he only carried three clubs and we would walk in seven holes because we never played nine because um, that was just a little too much. And uh, But all three of us would be out there, would be able to talk a little bit. And then we were also playing a game, and we did play to try to get better. But as a kid, I also learned etiquette. I also learned I wasn't supposed to scream, you know, all the time. I learned to stay out of somebody's lie and, you know, just a lot of, of respect. Um, so, I mean, you know, I lived – originally I lived in the north. I spent a lot of time down in the south, so maybe it's also regional. Uh, golf courses maybe um, – I'm sure they're lots expensive down, um, down south, but – I just had a completely different experience, and you know, lots of my friends played like that. So, let me, Andrea, let me ask. Well, let me make one observation, and then ask you a quick question. My observation is, uh, if Woody Guthrie had written a song about golf, it would have been about your grandparents. Uh, <laughs> but and maybe Probably. he did. For all I know, I don't know all the Woody Guthrie songs. But my question is, when's the last time you played golf? Um, well, I'd have to say it was about eight years ago when we moved to Connecticut. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, I, I believe I played better than my husband. <laughs> and so we got into a little bit of so a... So you never played again. Your husband refused to play with you from then on. Yeah, uh. no. If he happens to be listening to this, um, that could be part of it. Yeah, um, but I, I have to say up here in Connecticut, we picked up a, a different sport while we're here. But yeah. when I go back down to the South, yeah, I'd be up for it. So, Bob Cook, I mean, this this is an interesting conversation, and in some ways it, it relates to some of the things that you've said. I mean, so she's a great story, and she they should use her in golf commercials, except she hasn't played in eight years. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot, you know, you just have to find the time or, or find the people, and, and you know, and, and with, without getting too much into the life of a person who just called who I've heard for the first time, I mean, you know, there, there was so much of a social aspect to it that, you know, that, that went beyond the game that, that, that made it enjoyable. You know, one thing I was thinking of as she was talking too is that, you know, while obviously given, you know, what I write, I focusing, you know, focus more on the younger side, but, you know, there's also a lot of, you know, older people who are just not, you know, the baby boomers are getting older and, and people who, you know, like she was talking about, um, you know, can't walk around the course anymore. You know, that, you know, you have all these golf uh, retirement communities in Florida where, you know, these people are all getting in their 80s and it's sort of hard to get around and, and that can't help but have an effect on the number of players as well that if you, you know, even if you have a cart, I mean, it can still be, you know, it, it can still be physically grueling, you know, if you've, if you're, you know, working on new knees and new hips to to make your way around the course. Um, you know, but another thing that she said, Brian, intrigued me. Was was it John Smoltz who just recently in the course of somebody who just got into the Hall of Fame was saying, made a big speech about don't have your kids play baseball all season long. Do all kinds of other things, you know, diversify. It's just it's not healthy. I mean, Bob was talking about that at the beginning of the show, that, that kids seem to get groomed now for one thing uh, in this kind of unwholesome way. And she was saying, well, we never got all that good. And it, I don't know. I mean, the idea of playing a sport and not getting all that good good at it is that's a healthy thing and but i wonder if that is sort of falling out of the lexicon of american life absolutely just screwing around right screwing around with a sport not worrying about being uh being world class at it no i think that's true i was you know you i think you see that in all youth sports now you used to have these experiences in your little league team where there were a couple of people that were starting that were just really bad and as somebody was telling me today now everything goes straight to all-stars you know and uh traveling teams and those kinds of things. And I think uh, I think that's part of the thing. If you were bad at golf but having fun, you're the kind of person who would watch it or maybe play it as an adult. And I think, by the way, Colin, she solved our urban golfing problem, office parks. Yeah. Imagine just going and getting up and down in an office park. No need to pay for the public course fees anymore. It's perfect. It's a sport and a Mike Judge movie. All right, here's uh, George <laughs> from Naugatuck. Hi, George, you're on the air. Hey, how are you, Colin? I was really glad to hear that you're – your son took up golf because it annoyed you. Um, I'm a father of three boys, mm-hmm. and uh, um, I was a caddy in my youth, but uh, two of my sons are diehard golfers. They're 22 and 28, and um, at halftime during the game last night, they switched to the golf channel. <laughs> um, they watch uh, – w- uh, we moved up here. We moved uh, to, to Naugatuck. There's a course here. It's Hopbrook. Uh, it's a nine-hole course. It's so old that horses used to pull the mowers. <laughs> and uh, my kids started playing there when they were 10 and 12. And it was cheaper than daycare. 
Um, you know, they, maybe they should go back to the horses. I mean, one of the things we haven't talked about, but there are all kinds of environmental issues about uh, golf. Uh, Connecticut's been a real battleground for this. Famously, this uh, hugely connected guy, Roland Betts, who I think built Chelsea Piers, where, by the way, you can drive golf balls into the Hudson. But uh, he was trying to develop a, a golf course in uh, Norfolk, Connecticut, in North Canaan. There was a six-year fight about it. It turned into a big Mark Singer article in The New Yorker. That golf course never got built. The Connecticut uh, Environmental Defense Fund has been very involved in arguing that golf courses are not open space. They can't be treated as open space. So that's another part of it. That's like a whole other show that we could conceivably do. Um, and But anyway, thanks uh, for those calls and for that call, George. I do also want to say my son also, for the same reason, wound up listening to Corn and Limp Biscuit. So this hasn't been an unalloyed <laughs> success, this strategy of reacting uh, against me in negative ways. Um, well, Colin, I, I do have to say as the parent of teenagers that I, I've, I've found that my, my secret to parenting success is that uh, realizing that by the age of 13, your child will pick an activity that you don't know or understand. And what that is and how you react to it pretty much determines the, your future relationship. You know, one thing that we haven't talked about, and we're going to have to do it kind of fast, Brian Curtis, is um, golf and presidents. I mean, presidents have typically played golf. Um, uh, this year, Alexander Wolf published this terrific book about it, the fact that Obama kind of came into office as a basketball-playing and basketball-adoring president. We did a whole show about that. But then he started playing golf. There were even people, there was a Washington Post article that suggested, it was by somebody from the Council on Foreign Relations, suggesting that's where his presidency went wrong. He started playing golf, and he started getting <laughs> criticized for playing golf after horrible things would happen. Um, in fact, of all people, uh, George W. Bush defended President Obama in an interview with, uh, I think, the Golf Channel. We have that here. Mr. President, you haven't been golfing in recent years. Is that related to Iraq? Yeah, it really is. Uh, I don't want uh, some mom uh, whose son may have recently died to see the commander-in-chief playing golf. Why is golf such a hot-button issue? You know, I see our president criticized for playing golf. I don't. I think he ought to play golf. Why is that? Well, because I know what it's like to be in the bubble. And uh, I know I know the pressures of the job. And to be able to get outside and play golf with some of your pals is important for the president. It does give you an outlet. It's a good release then. I think it is. And I think it's good for the president to be out playing golf. So so there you have it, Brian. But I mean, so there's there's this other notion of golf is that it's a release from stress that in some ways the busiest guy in the world, the president of the United States, always seems to find time to uh, play golf. And there's a sense that he decompresses. He gets some kind of perspective on life. Um, and I, I don't know. The, to me, that doesn't square with my understanding of golf, where I'm familiar with more names for failure like Shank and Hook and Slice and Yip than I am with names for success. Yeah. Wasn't it Bill, Bill Clinton who famously used to take mulligans all over the golf course? Right. Sort and of and in, elsewhere. In golf, I was going to say golf becomes a metaphor for women's presidency, right? Yeah. But if Obama, you know, you're right. If Obama, it's funny that, and I seem to remember uh, George Bush getting criticized too for playing golf early in the Iraq War. Well, yeah, actually, and, uh, we, you know, we, Brian, we have that clip for you. This is—he's being asked questions by the press on a golf course for some reason. Here's how that went: We must stop the terror. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank, Thank you. you. Now watch this drive. So that happened. <laughs> kind of an abrupt transition, right? Yeah. Well, but once again, maybe that's sort of one of the I mean, so um Bob Cook there that's one of the arguments for golf is 
the zen of golf, right? That somehow or other you turn your mind off, you focus on this other stuff. Um, and I don't know. I mean, it, it may, if it costs 30 bucks to play golf and $15 for your yoga class, maybe that's what's happening there. I don't know. Well, that could be. And, and you know, then, and different generations find their release in, in different ways. And, um, you know, and, and so uh, I don't know, maybe maybe with golf, I, I guess I could make the the, the generationally snide comment that, well, you can't put your cell phone down for four hours, can you? But, <laughs> um, you know, but really, yeah, it's, it's you, know, different, you know, different generations have different approaches to sport. And, and you know, again, with, with golf, I think what makes it unique is that, you know, golf has been as sort of this rarefied air as, as something to aspire to. It's, very, it's been very much an aspirational sport, you know, that if you're going to, you're going to move up in life, um, you know, you need to learn how to play golf, and and that isn't necessarily so anymore. I mean, you know, if unless, you know, unless we see Mark Zuckerberg playing golf, I'm not sure that 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 uh, will still hold. <laughs> All right, on that disturbing image, we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back. I think we need to talk to somebody who owns and runs a golf course, so we will. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Stephanie Reef and Ross Levin. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Chi-Chi Rodriguez. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff slicing a hook on a shank, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. Tomorrow we revisit our show about placebos. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, I have to quickly mention that, well, I want to quickly mention that tomorrow night uh, at uh, 7 p.m. at Watkinson School uh, in West Hartford, I will be hosting a panel related to what we're talking about now, sort of. It's about public investment in sports. We've uh, seen some money being spent here in Hartford to create the AA Yard Goats franchise, uh, which will be playing very soon here in Hartford. We've had the 1998 uh, traumatic experience of almost bringing the New England Patriots here. Uh, we lost the Whalers, uh, the Whalers were are still revered as a logo. Uh, we're going to talk about all of this, sort of w- why you spend money, t- sometimes public money, uh, on sports for a community and what you get out of it when you do. And you are welcome to come. Go to the Watkinson.org website, Watkinson.org. Look for the logo that says Freshly Squeezed. You'll find out how to get uh, tickets. You can come early and go to a lovely dinner uh, with us, or you can just show up at 7 and hear the conversation. Uh, I should say the owner of the Yard Goats, Josh Solomon, will be with us. Uh, sports economist Victor Matheson from Holy Cross uh, and uh, Oz Griebel, uh, who is the leader of Metro Hartford Alliance. Uh, all right, so, and we'll have some uh, people from Whaler Nation in the stands, too. There's like this whole unreconstructed group of Whaler fans who still hope that they'll come back someday. Anyway, we're, now we're going to we'll go back to golf here, and we're going to talk uh, to somebody who uh, owns and runs a, a golf course, a golf course in East Granby, Connecticut. It's called the Copper Hill Golf Course, uh, and that's Paul Banks. Uh, he's with us now. Uh, Paul Banks, you've probably heard a little bit of this conversation, some of which has verged into the uh, gloomy and doomy area about golf. So how's the golf business doing in East Granby? Well, um, on a day like today, unfortunately not so much, but uh, I've got nothing but time on my hands today. Uh, my experience has been a little bit different. I've been in the golf business for 
20, almost 25 years now, uh, owning the course for the last eight. Um, and I've seen an uptrend just about every year that I've been here. So I am having the opposite experience. Well, the one thing that I did wonder about, too, obviously climate change is going to affect golf and probably has all over the country in places where it, it's hot a lot of the time anyway and it's going to get hotter. Uh, it's going to be tough for golf. In some ways, New England golf courses could be – I have a friend uh, uh, named Dan who I watch uh, Green Bay Packers games with during the, the football season, but he's usually coming from playing golf, and sometimes that's even the case when the game is in December, right? You, I assume you have guys on warm – or women, too, on warm you know, winter days or what we used to call winter uh, out there wanting to hit some balls. We do, actually. Um, the, the golf course, people will come out if it's, if it's 65 degrees in any month of the year. Um, this last year was a perfect example. We had a couple of weekends that we were open in December, and uh, we probably could have been open in January February, but uh, we opted not to do that. Oh, so I've been talking to Brian and Bob about how to uh, make golf also, to find sort of entry ways to golf or, or make golf a little bit different. One thing you've got up there is something called foot golf. Tell us about foot golf. Foot golf. Foot golf is, as, as, the, game, as the name implies, it's, uh, it's golf, and you're using your foot, uh, and you're kicking a soccer ball. And on our golf course, we installed an 18-hole foot golf course um, each hole is, is 21 inches wide, so it's wide enough to fit a standard size soccer ball. Um, and we, we aligned with the American Foot Golf League, and they gave us instructions on how to place our cups and our tees, and uh, we got it uh, accredited. And it's a full-blown 18-hole foot golf course. So, um, Bob Cook, this maybe uh, falls in line with some of the things that you've been talking about. It's unclear whether uh, foot golf can be a gateway drug to golf, but it's sort of it's closer to the kinds of things that kids uh, from the current generation would think about doing. They're more soccer oriented than they are golf oriented. It, well, definitely, and and you know, and what it does too is is even if it doesn't convert kids into actual golfers. You know, it gets people to a golf course so they can see the sport or it gets people to a golf course so they spend money there for whatever it is they're going to be doing. So certainly for, you know, so certainly for operators, you know, I can see why you'd want to, you know, you'd want to do things like this. Um, you know, I've heard of, of uh, courses, too, that have um, enlarged the holes to, uh, you know, to, to try to make the sport more appealing. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of ideas and all sorts of creative ideas coming from uh, different operators around the country. Um, you know, whether, again, whether these, these kids become golfers, you know, is it, you've got to get people to your course, you've got to get people to your business. So, you know, if they're not coming for, for golf, see if they can come for something else. Um, Brian Curtis, I'm also wondering, uh, this is the first year, I think, if I'm correct about this, that golf is an Olympic sport. I don't know whether that translates into anything in the public imagination, since we don't really have, we don't have a ex- pre-existing co- co- uh, connection, obviously, between the Olympics and golf. Yeah, but wrapping anything up in nationalism, as we see every four years with the Olympics, is an awfully effective uh, thing, right? It gets us interested in gymnastics and track and all these other niche sports. So I don't think it can hurt to have Jordan Spieth and company out there uh, wrapped in the flag. Um, and, and so, Paul, um, are there other things that you're doing out there, maybe even to sort of re- relax some of the conventions and mores of golf to make it a little bit more appealing to a more casual generation? Yeah, we, we, we have made some moves in some of our leagues and some of our association that we have here to, to try to disband that, that uh, idea that we're kind of an elitist sport. 
So many of our leagues are very relaxed. We don't re- don't have such such a strict requirements that we once had. Um, it's a come if you can sort of a thing, and more of a social environment. Um, if you if there was something that you, as somebody who makes his living in the world of golf, could could wish for, either something that maybe when Susie Whaley takes over the PGA, or something that that golf professional golfers could do in general in terms of sending a message, or I don't know, are there, are, is there something that you can think of that would make your business better, easier, more attractive to people that it's not currently attracting? I would say that. Uh, I always think from the business side of things, yeah. but um, when I grew up as a kid, there weren't as many golf courses and there were plenty of golfers. Tiger Woods came along and the entire United States became one big golf course with way too many golf courses per capita. Um, and, it, and it just drove it to unjustifiable heights during that time. So my hope is that at this point we can, we can uh, even out that supply and demand again so that golf again is in its rightful place as a as a niche sport um that appeals to you know just a certain number of people but everybody's happy and everybody's successful in their business um and and brian this goes back to the very first thing you said today on the show which is that golf may be uh, facing certain kinds of declines that doesn't mean golf is going away maybe it means that golf is kind of finding its its proper it's like water it's seeking its proper level here in the world yeah, it's reverting to where it's always been, which is a happy, profitable level. You know, I think if you ask any TV executive, they'll say, before Tiger, we had this group of, uh, you know, wealthy, perhaps older men who showed up every day, every Sunday to watch a golf tournament. We sold them lots of Buicks and golf clubs. And I don't think those people are going anywhere. Uh, I think that group is still going to be there. And I think what we're seeing is just kind of a, a reversion to that old pre-Tiger level of golf, which is a pretty happy place for everybody. Although, Bob Cook, your question would be, does that group exist in a way that it, that it I mean, can that group replicate the culture of, say, the, the 1980s, the pre-Tiger era, or does it need to sort of look different somehow? It needs to look different, and it will look different, because it's, it's, it's just not going to be the same. I mean, you know, you, you hear this argument, uh, really in any sport, but, uh, but you know, baseball uh, in particular right now, where you have, you know, Bryce Harper and Goose Gossage barking at each other about you know, about respecting the game or who's not respecting the game and, you know, the old timers getting on the, on the youth. I mean, it, it happens in every sport. Um, and, you know, it, it, it'll happen in golf, but, you know, I, I mean, let's face it. I mean, you know, when people get creative is, is when, um, you know, is, is when things start to suffer a little bit. And, you know, that's, you know, what golf course operators are doing now is, is trying to get creative and, you know, we'll see what it means for the long-term future of the sport. But yeah, it, golf is not going to disappear, and there, there's not going to be, you know, you're it's you're never going to see kids stop playing it. It's just not going to be at the numbers that um, that there were before. Well, thanks to Bob Cooks, uh, Cook. Thanks to Paul Banks. Uh, thanks to Brian Curtis. The first issue of The Ringer will be out soon with a major investigative piece about the performance-enhancing drug crisis in foot golf. Is foot golf completely compromised now, or can it go forward? You'll find out when the ringer comes out. Thanks to Josh Nalea for producing today. Trudging up and down these hills and blistering in the sun. Well, I just missed a three-foot putt. Oh, great, I'm going blind. I hate this game. I hate this game. I say that all the time. Ugh, in the weeds. What do you think, Caddy? I'll get your wedge. No, 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 no. That won't work. I need something that really cuts through. Uh, a five iron? Nah. Let's go for the weed whacker. Oh. 